0: Welcome to the podcast of Rotary Magazine, the official publication of Rotary International. I'm Steve Edwards. For a pilot, few feats are as epic as a flight around the world. Four years ago, that spirit of adventure struck Peter Tian, a member of the Rotary Club of Iowa City AM. Determined to make his dream a reality, Peter called upon John Aachenfels, a fellow Rotarian, and his cousin through marriage. Peter needed John to join him, was the only way Peter's wife would agree to him making the journey. So together, Peter and John meticulously planned their expedition. And they knew they wanted their experience to benefit more than just themselves. Being Rotarians, polio eradication seemed an apt cause. Thus, the flight to end polio was born. But setting off on their journey would take longer than expected. The COVID-19 pandemic and the war in Ukraine both caused major delays and made them reroute their flight path. But Peter and John persevered, and on May 5th, 2023, they took off from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, ready to handle any turbulence that lie ahead. And I'd love to begin by asking you how each of you got involved in Rotary. Peter, do you want to go first?
1: It was you know, I was new in business. They were starting a new Rotary club here in Cedar Rapids, Cedar Rapids West. And I was approached by another member of that club. And at that point, I really didn't know much about Rotary. We did an orientation and learned about all the great things that Rotary does. And it was exciting because the dynamic impact of the club on the community. And so it's, I've grown old with all the other members in our club and it's fun to see the new members that are joining our club now and participating in the excitement of our Rotary Club. Is Now, I think that's one of the great values of Rotary is there's the social and support of people. They're constantly searching how to be involved and how to improve the community. And that's probably more important today than ever. And so over the years... We stayed on, on focus. And of course, the main focus was polio and ending polio. And so it was always in the forefront of a Rotary discussions.
0: I want to talk more about what you and John specifically have done in that global fight to end polio. But, John, what was your journey to Rotary as a fellow Rotarian, also a fellow Iowan? My
2: journey is, goes all the way back to when I was in high school. I went to a private Catholic high school in Iowa City, Regina. And we had a lot of service events and service projects for the community. And I was encouraged through school and through family members to be involved in the community. Well, my dad and three of my brothers were in this other organization called Kiwanis. And so I was considered to be the black sheep of the family because when it came time to make a choice, I really chose Rotary. And, of course, that's a, that's a tongue in cheek joke in our family. We all support community service, however it comes about. But I still recall on my very first meeting I went to as a guest in Rotary in early 1986, they were talking about this thing called polio eradication program. At the time, there was only one Rotary Club in Iowa City, and it was 300 members. And so after joining that club a couple of years later, I had the opportunity to be on a committee To start up a new Rotary Club. We started that club in 1989, and I'm still with that club today. I have stayed active with Rotary as a president, as board members, as many different district committee assignments, and eventually as a district governor. And the focus on polio eradication has been there for me since that day one and continued on.
0: And so, where did the idea for the flight to end polio come from for the two of you? I
1: got my pilot's license back in 1972. And I've traveled the world. I do disaster management around the world. I my daughter's with the government. I so I chased her and the grandkids around the world. And I often thought whether I could take my plane and fly it around the country. And at that point, it was early 2019. Never really didn't know of anybody actually taking a small single-engine piston airplane flying around the world. It seemed to be a real stretch. And I told my wife, I said, you know, hey Janet, I'm thinking about taking my plane and flying it around the world. And what do you think? And I jokingly say it. She looked at me and says, you're serious. You know, that I think she was kind of, didn't want to shoot my dream down, but figured I'd move off to something else. And, and she says, well, you're not going to do it by yourself. You're going to find somebody as crazy as you that will do it with you. I was thinking of all the list of different people I knew at Flyer who flew. And John's name came up. on. Well, I really had never had a long conversation with John. And so I said, well, I know he's crazy because he's got three airplanes. So that kind of fits the definition. And so I called him up and I said, can I come down to your office at the airport and just talk to you for a bit? And then I finally got the nerve up to start talking about this crazy idea of flying around the world. And we spent quite a bit of time on that. And You know, not feeling terribly confident I had sold him on the idea. I kind of, in a very low-pitched tone, as he describes, said, you know, you could go with me. And, John, I think you said you didn't even know if I was serious about it. Yeah,
2: I had to process that. There's no joke. It was uh, one of those things where you've just been offered the key to the golden office. Do you really want it? And I've told the same story. That little kid inside me was jumping up and down and turning somersaults, but that other more refined guy on the outside kind of knew that this was a big deal and said, I'd get back to you. And it really did take me a couple weeks to get back to him and because I needed to make sure that I was 100% on board with this and that I really understood the consequences of what this answer was going to be before I talked to my wife and brought her on board she was, she's was. she been supported since day one. And that's really been the structure behind this whole thing was without the support of our
1: families and our wives, we couldn't have done this trip. And John and I really have a strong humanitarian service. And, you know, John does a lot with Rotary. I do a lot with disaster response and charitable work that I've done. And we both looked at each other. You know, we're doing this crazy flight. We've got to figure out a way how we can help humanity. So we started kicking around ideas for both Rotarians and Rotary is known around the world. And we both have learned all of our lives in Rotary about ending polio. Maybe we let's raise money and eradicate polio. And then we came up with the name Flight to End Polio. And so in the early discussions, you know, well, what can two guys going around the world raise in money? And we said, well... You know, if we raised like $18,000, that'd be a lot of money. And so that was our original goal was $18,000 that would go to Rotary. And at that point, we made the commitment to each other. And then we said, you know, we're not going to do what a lot of other fundraisers do, where they raise all this money and then they deduct all their expenses and whatever's left to work as a charity. We made in very early days a decision that 100% of the money that's raised goes to Rotary. And 100% of the expenses that we incur, we will pay out of pocket. And we stuck to that commitment all the way up to today. And, you know, the expense of this trip will be in excess of $100,000. But that $18,000 dream back then is accumulating now, and it helps a lot. The Gates Foundation,
2: I think we're closing in at
1: $1.5 million. With the Gates match. With the Gates match involved.
2: Which means you still raised over half a million dollars outright. But we're pretty excited about what's happening, and we know that we're having an impact on the money being raised for the foundation. That's our goal.
1: And it really turned into a spiritual experience. I mean, we planned 21 countries, 39 stops, 24 fundraisers around the world. But we were doing newspaper, radio, TVs, you know, high school groups, all these, People kept coming to, you know, we were on front page, a lot of newspapers and the stories. We laughed because one headline said two supplicatarians flying around the world. And we looked at each other and say, are they talking about us? Because I turned 70, he turned 71 on the trip. So it was, threw it out. But it's more than, what we realized, it's more than just raising money. It was raising awareness. And the impact, we were home for two weeks. And I get a call from an 85-year-old gentleman in San Bernardino, California. He had just read a newspaper article about these two guys flying around the world raising awareness for polio and eradication. He says, I'm a polio victim. I had polio as a child. He said, I, I'm feeling this having the same sensations now as I did as a child. And I it's frightening me. And I'm talking to my doctor, and the doctor's saying, there's nothing connected with polio and it only affects kids. And I said, well, you may have the polio relapse syndrome. And he says, what's that? And I explained to him, he says, you're describing how I'm feeling and how I'm trying to tell my doctor. So reached out to Rotary International. They gave me links. I was able to give it to this man in San Bernardino. He took it to the doctor and the doctor knows about it now and he knows about it. And he was in tears the last time I talked to him. He says, it's made such a difference in my work of life.
2: And that's one of the things that we have found out. Polio relapse syndrome is a very real thing. And people describe it as feeling just like they did when they actually had polio. So it hurts.
0: You set out originally to raise $18,000. With the Gates Foundation match, you're at or above $1.5 million all in. You talk about... The kind of impact that you thought might be possible, and then think about what's happened since. Why do you think this flight around the world and this journey has captured so much attention and resonated with people? So,
2: the thing we get asked more than anything else why did you do this? And, you know, were you scared? Were you prepared? We've been planning this for almost four years. We've stopped it three times, not by choice. Our first, we were 10 days from launching in 2020, and we had to pull the plug because of COVID. 21 came around, and second time again, delayed because of COVID. Third time is delayed because Russia invaded Ukraine, and they kicked us out of Russia. The only way we could fly that airplane around the world was to go through Russia. And so we did something that I wasn't planning on doing a a year before that. Peter sold his airplane. I sold my airplane. Together, we bought a different airplane because the only possible route that we could take was to go down through southern Australia and come up through the Pacific Islands. I mean, that was going to mean 60 hours of flying time over open ocean. And, you know, everybody told us nobody in their right mind would do that. Well, put us in that group because that's where we are. And we really believed it could be done. We went into this with training. We went into this with intent. And, you know, it's it, the more you know about it, maybe the more comfortable you get. Maybe
0: the more you're willing to overlook some of the red flags. And, John, what makes a flight like this so challenging? What is it that makes it so dangerous? What makes it so
2: challenging is the massive amount of logistics that goes into planning it. Who are you going to have working with you? What are the languages you're going to use? How are you going to get through customs? Now, in the year that Peter spent before he invited me onto this flight, that's what he spent his time working out, figuring out how to get through all that. And so I came into it
1: with most of that already answered. But you figure almost more than 40% of our fuel had to be shipped into where we were landing. So we had to make all those arrangements because we have to land at international airports. You know, that's not easy to do. All the customs, all the legalities, all the... You know, every country we landed in, every country we flew in, we had to pay fees. And fees that we're not used to here in the United States. If I fly into Midway, I don't know, it's probably $20 to land and $10 to park. We flew into Saudi Arabia, it cost us $5,000 to land because they didn't have general aviation planes. It's an incredibly logistic, intense project that, you know, would scare away most people. People really believed we weren't going to do it. We had one guy that, you know, said, you guys are just blowing smoke the first year. He says, you're not doing it. You're just trying to make a name for yourself. And then second year, when it got canceled, we came back to second year. He says, well, maybe you are serious. And the third year got, well, see, you're not going to do it. And the fourth year, he says, my God, I'm going to make a donation to this thing because you guys are really serious about this. You know, we could have given up so many times. The challenges that we've been faced, the harassments from some of these governments we were dealing with, the people that said we couldn't do it. And Peter, you've
0: talked elsewhere about the importance of making a stop in Pakistan. Why was that so important to you to make that stop?
1: John and I both thought it was credibility. That's where the fight against polio is right now. We wanted to be on the front lines to understand what's happened. And what the future holds, and you know, what's to get the true story of the intense battle to get across this finish line. And we said it's, you know, we're supposedly out there raising awareness and raising money, it would be inconceivable that you wouldn't go to where the fight was to, to get the best understanding. And it was such a moving experience you know, to sit there walking through the ghettos and meeting with the families and the workers who are there every day. John and I were blessed, you know, when we got there, we went to the emergency operations center as command center. Aziz and his staff arranged that we sat down with a briefing with one of the directors from World Health and from UNICEF and from Rotary. At that end of the table, far end of the table, were about 15, 16, 17 reporters, TV, radio, every newspapers were sitting there listening to this presentation. At the end of the presentation, we were surprised when the three directors got up and said, okay, the press conference is yours. And we said, wait a minute, nobody told us about a press conference. But we sat down with, we you know, got at the head of the table and they hooked us up with microphones in front of us. And you know, the first question that came out of the TV anchor's mouth was, Now that you've heard it and you've seen it, do you still have hope that you're going to see the end of polio? For both John and I, that was a moment of change. And I think there was a lightning bolt or things happen in life you can't explain. And I looked at him and I said, I'm sorry, I no longer have hope that we will see the end of polio. At that moment, every Rotarian about fell off the chair. The media picked up their pens and papers. And I said, I don't have hope. I believe. And believing is far more powerful than having hope. And I said, it's not that I believe we can. I says, I believe we will. And I hope you tell all your readers, all your listeners, that these two Rotarians or Rotary believe we will see the end of polio. From there on, the word kind of spread ahead of us. We'd land at airports and people would be standing there with belief signs in their hands. We went to a district governor, a district conference in India. There were two, three hundred. In our presentation, these three hundred people are standing on their feet, chanting louder and louder like you're at a football game. We believe, we believe. And, uh, you know, to me, it made a powerful change and the purpose of why we're there, and the impact that we could possibly have on bringing awareness and the commitment.
0: Really powerful. You know, some of what you're sharing there, Peter, also brings to mind the global Rotary community. And I'm curious, John, what role did Rotary clubs and Rotarians play along the way throughout this journey for you?
2: There's no question that when we use the term the family of Rotary, it really is what it is. All along our route, we were treated as if we just joined another family member. If we had a problem when we got there, Rotary members were there to make sure that problem was fixed. And we were invited into their homes and to meet their families, to have dinner with them, to do these things. And we were literally treated as another family member coming home, which was really unique. We had some maintenance issues with the airplane. That we were going to have fixed when we got to Australia, we got to Australia to the place that was going to fix it. And The day before that, that very highly qualified shop was told by Australian version of our FAA they couldn't work on that on our airplane because it was a U.S. registered airplane, and under their laws, they had to have a U.S. trained technician, certified technician to work on it, and they didn't have anybody like that on their staff. Through a couple comments, quick emails to a couple Rotarians the International Fellowship of Flying Rotarians around the world. An hour later, we had maintenance set up just outside of Brisbane, where we were already going, in a fully qualified shop with a person that was wanting to do the work. And our airplane spent six days in the shop, and we would not have had that if it hadn't been for the family Rotary that was there to help. When we landed in America, Samoa, nobody knew we were coming. We thought... But a couple hours before we landed, a group of Rotarians there found out we were on the way through some of our friends back here in the States. And here's eight Rotarians standing literally on the ramp next to our airplane when we shut down the engine, walking us to Samoa. And we saw that time and again. We came out of Honolulu at the last minute. Instead of going to Temecula, California, the previous night we decided because of weather and whatever we're going to go to Oakland, it's probably a better alternative And when we landed at Oakland, here's the current, the immediate past history governor and a couple members of Rotary waiting there to meet us in the middle of the night. Same in Sri Lanka. We landed there at three o'clock in the morning. Here's a district governor, members of her staff, and other people there to meet us to make sure we get to the hotel and get checked in safely. That's what Rotary is all about around the world. That's what I love about Rotary. And we were guaranteed when we went to Pakistan. Uh, Aziz Memon told us outright that when I said, you know, we do have some security concerns. And he says, don't worry, we're going to take care of you and your airplane. And they did. And when we landed there, here's the three guys, who are who our handlers, and a whole bunch of other guys standing around them. They're all wearing military uniforms. I recognize all these military guys are carrying sidearms, rifles, or in most cases, machine guns. And they're walking with purpose toward our airplane and Peter and I, and I look at Peter and I'm saying... I don't know whether to wave hello or put my hands up. Well, it turns out that those military guys were just like everybody else in the world, and they were really interested to find out what this airplane thing was all about. When we left there, we had a military escort out of the airport into every place we went in in Karachi, and they left three guys to guard our airplane while we were gone for a few days.
1: I'll expand with John saying that I picked up a very nasty parasite while we were in Karachi. I ended up being in the hospital three times. I was in India over my birthday for two and a half days in isolation, very sick. Got out from there, got to Darwin, went in an emergency room for six hours, and then ended up, by the time I got to Cairns, I was in seven, nine days in isolation in there. But I was never alone. Even in isolation, in a strange country, getting medical care, the Rotary Members of that area were always at my side. They call on me, always check to see I was doing. What do you need? They bring up food or they bring up supplies. Or on my birthday, I ended up with three birthday cakes. And my wife was wanting to fly over. My daughter's wanting to fly over. I said, don't worry, my, my rotary family's here and they're taking care of me. So that connection, that rotary family concept in so many ways made this very powerful trip
0: for us. You know, Peter and John, you both talked about the powerful connections with Rotarians and the experiences on the ground as you completed your journey around the world. You also talked about the logistical challenges, but what was it like for the two of you in the plane, in the air, flying at sometimes long distances or over open water, open ocean for a long period of time? I was flying
2: the airplane. Peter was handling all the communications, all the logistics and the navigation, and he is actually working more than I was, but every 15 minutes, he was typing in on a text our lats and longs and our locations and exactly where we were, and that was critical for people to find us if there was a problem. And again, it was later on we found out that almost half of them didn't go anywhere. We were well over an hour and a half, weren't we, at one point where they missed everything? And you look
1: at like Air Malaysia with the big commercial flight. They haven't found that. They're not going to find a little plane like us. And it was that leg that probably was the scariest moment because we were what three, four hours outside Honolulu. And John, you know, calculating all the fuel burn. And John turns to me and said, "We're we don't have enough gas to get to Honolulu. We're going to be an hour short at least of getting to Honolulu with fuel." The only option at that point, there's no place to land. It was now turning dark. We had just come through a storm. There's no stars. There's no moon. No lights on the ground. You couldn't see your hand in the face. And we were facing for over 45 minutes having to put the plane down in the ocean, knowing we've had no communication with anyone, that they wouldn't even know where we were at. And John was working hard doing calculations. He found an error in one of the calculations. And he's after about 45 minutes, he turns and he says, we're going to make it to Honolulu. But for those 45 minutes, we were convinced we put it down in the ocean, in the NARP, in a storm weather conditions. We didn't know the conditions of the waves. But when we landed in Honolulu, we ended up with just under two hours of fuel supply left.
0: What goes through your mind in a moment like that when you're thinking we might not have enough to make it? We may even have to land in the middle of an ocean and we don't have any communication.
2: I can tell you from that experience and others like it over the over my lifetime, you start focus heavily on what are the procedures we need to do to number one, get the most we can. To number two, if we have to put this thing down in the water, what's our preparation? What have we prepared for? How have we done it? Is it all good? We knew where we had the raft right behind our seat. We knew where that was. We knew where all the emergency equipment was. We knew where the radio equipment was. We knew the procedures for getting out of the airplane. And how to land it on the water, to be honest with you. A lot of people don't know, but the vast majority
0: of water landings are actually quite successful. But the the other thing was, don't give up on it. You ultimately make it to Honolulu and land sometime thereafter back in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Take us back to that day when you landed in Cedar Rapids back in your home state. What do you remember about that homecoming?
2: That was our shortest flight because although we told the world we were going to land at Denver, what we didn't tell the world was that we were also going to depart Denver and fly toward Des Moines, Iowa, because we didn't want to make a six-hour flight to land at home at nine o'clock in the morning. It's only a 45-minute flight from Ankeny Airport just north of Des Moines, so we spent the night at Ankeny the night before, and that way if we had any issues or problems or whatever, we can get home. But even that last day we found out we developed an oil leak on the engine. It, was, it wasn't it was really major. Fortunately, it didn't happen when we were crossing the ocean. But just the steel started to leak, and we were dripping some oil out the bottom of the airplane. Added oil and flew it home. But those are the kind of things that come to play. You know, good thing we were in Ankeny, not in Denver.
1: Well, so, thank God, we were in Ankeny and not 17 hours over the ocean. Because had it happened, what, six days earlier, we would have... Lost all of our oil and engine would have frozen over the ocean.
2: Possibility. It's true. At 9 o'clock in the morning on Sunday the 30th, we were on final approach into the Cedar Rapids airport, and everything was good. Life was grand. We were all going well, and nothing hit me until just before we touched down, the controller said, Welcome home. That's when I knew we made it. That's when it became real for me. The rest of the time it was just part of the journey, part of the experience. You gotta keep going. You do what you gotta do, make your decisions, plan the next one, and keep going.
1: And for my wife, when we landed in Cedar Rapids, I opened up the door. As soon as she saw my foot come out of the plane and touch the tarmac, she just started falling because she knew we were finally home. Another gentleman, George, from who's with International Flying Rotarians. Was there? He was coming back from Oshkosh when that propeller finally stopped rotating. He said he got tears in his eyes, knowing that we had traveled more than thirty thousand miles over ninety days to bring attention to about polio and the message of Rotary. And he knew he was such a big influence on the flight while we were on the flight. You know, now I'm I'm taking time. You're you've got all the chaos out of your mind now. I'm just sitting back and reflecting on the flight, on the mission, what we achieved, what we were surprised by. I always say there is somebody truly watching over us from above to get us home safely, and that must have also believed in the mission of what we were doing to watch over us and make sure we got home.
0: What are the lessons you draw from this experience? From the very start of the planning of this
2: trip, I don't think many people would have kept going after the initial blow of being shut down for two years because of COVID. And so we were gonna go. When Russia shot us down, literally, they canceled our visas, they canceled everything else. They sent us notices saying, you can't come. But the reality of it is, is that we kept moving forward. Who in their right mind would have sold their airplanes in order to jointly buy another airplane to take this venture that we just took? which was not the smartest thing we ever did because we launched around the world in an airplane we didn't know as well as we maybe should have, the individual airplane. By the way, I owned a similar airplane for 28 years. Peter had owned his airplane for what, almost 30 years? I knew the airplane inside and out, except it was a different airframe, a different machine. And it let us down a few times because we didn't have enough time to really wring it out before we left. And yeah, that's something that, I won't do that again. Peter?
1: The number one goal of this flight was to make it home alive to our families. And I think that was a driving principle that we agreed to, that we're not going to take risks. We're not going to do something really stupid. Every decision we made was based on, are we going to get home to our families? We worked on safety. We made sure that every possible thing could be done. And when we had electrical failure. Almost two hours out over the ocean, and when we're all computer-based navigation and uh, all of our communications would quickly fail if we didn't get back in time before we lost all of our battery strength. But we got back. There was a lot of preparedness. There was a lot of common sense. There was a lot of times where we could have done something just to make something happen, and we decided, no, we're going to be safe. We're not doing that. The fact that, you know you're sitting in your chair there, Steve, and I don't know if you've seen the cockpit pictures of this plane, put another chair right next to you. Our elbows were touching. Our hips were touching. You couldn't get up. You couldn't move around the airplane. And John and I are still talking to each other. You know, my wife says, I don't think I can do 90 days in an airplane with you. <laughs> so it, but it was, that was all part of the preparation. Yeah. Did I get angry at John a couple of times? Yeah. Did he get angry with me a few times? Yeah. No. But, it didn't last long. And we said, we knew what the mission was. We knew what our purpose was. We had the basic principles of our decisions and we stuck by them. And, uh, it was a good partnership. Yeah. Great partnership.
0: Well, we are certainly glad that you are home safely, that you're still talking to each other. And we're grateful that you have spent this time talking with us. And most importantly, appreciative of all that you've done to raise awareness globally for polio. Peter Tian and John Ackenfels are Iowa-based pilots, humanitarians and Rotarians. They recently completed the Flight to End Polio, their initiative to circumnavigate the globe to raise awareness and funds in the global effort to eliminate polio. Peter's a member of the Cedar Rapids West Rotary Club and part of the International Fellowship of Flying Rotarians. And John is a member of the Iowa City, Iowa AM Rotary Club, who also served as district governor for Rotary District 6000. Peter, John, thank you so much for this conversation. And congrats again and all the best to you both. Thanks, Steve. We appreciate your time and
2: effort. Let us do
0: this. Thank you. Thanks to Peter Tihan and John Akenfeld for sharing their journey with us and helping to raise awareness for polio eradication. If you would like to donate to help end polio, visit flighttoendpolio.com. That's flighttoendpolio, all one word.com. And by the way, your contribution will be matched 2 to 1 by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. This episode of the Rotary Magazine podcast is produced by Kristen Morris and JP Swenson and edited by Wen Wong with production by Tim Kamm. I'm Steve Edwards. Thanks for listening.